Six times in chapter five, we read this little word, woe. Woe is a warning. And we generally don't do well with warnings, do we? So last September, Hurricane Ian hit the southern part of Florida. 155 mile an hour winds, 20 foot storm surge, over 60 miles of the Florida coastline. There was plenty of warning. 144 people died. A third of them died by drowning. Some of them died because they didn't heed the warning. There were some of those people that died on an island called Sanibel Island. It's a, a coastal island that's kind of a barrier island right off, right off the coastline of Florida. There's only one way in and one way out. A very plush, wealthy area, beautiful island. And, and if you want to understand geographically what Sanibel Island is, if I can put it in basketball terms, it would kind of go like this. Sanibel Island is a 12-year-old kid who plays basketball at the Murray County Rec, about to take a charge from an NBA player who is coming in for a two-handed slam. That's, what's, that's Sanibel Island. It's, it's going to be a foul, but boy, it's going to be a mess, right? It's, it's, it's going to be ugly when that thing hits, and it did. And there's a video of a woman who is is filming her goodbye to her family. She, the, the water is, is halfway up the trees. She is surrounded. The, the bridge is gone. She realizes she is about to die. And so she is thanking her family for the, the good things they brought in her life. And she is saying goodbyes as she feels like she is certainly about to die. So the question we have is, why didn't you leave? You had plenty of warning, and that's, a, that's an interesting question in psychology. Why is it that people don't do well with warnings? And so there's several articles, but here's kind of where it bears out. One is people compare their future possibilities to their present and past experiences. You just don't have a frame of reference. You, you keep being told, 155-mile-an-hour wind, Category 4 storm, 20, but you've never seen that. So you can't imagine what that's going to be like. All you know, well, I've been through some storms in my past, but not like this one. But that's your reference point, and so people don't leave. Here's the most interesting one of all, and we all do it. We, we live in an area where there's lots of tornadoes and storms, Right? And, and you get told by the meteorologist on television, hey, we're picking up something on radar. You need to go down to your basement and get in a place of safety. What do you do right after they tell you to do that? Some of you go, I run down in my basement. I get in the dryer, right? And I close the door. That's good for you, right? Don't raise your hand and confess this out loud. But let me tell you what a lot of us do. As soon as you hear that warning, you go to the window. Well, I don't see anything. That's human. We have to verify it with our own eyes. And it is true that some people 
don't leave when there's a hurricane coming because they literally look outside and it doesn't look that bad. But all of a sudden, when you are surrounded by 15 feet of water and you're about to die, all of a sudden you realize it's too late to respond to what you were warned about. That's, that's the way people behave with storms. Y'all, we do much worse with the warnings of Scripture. Man, it, there's, there's all kinds of warnings in the Bible, man, about the way this thing's going to end. And we look out the window and go, well, I don't look that bad, right? So imagine Isaiah comes walking into a situation where life is going really well. And he issues warnings. You, you understand the book of Isaiah, these are preachings and prophecies that he gives over the span of 10 years. And things are going really well, but he is envisioning a future that they're looking out the window and they're going, there's no way. And what I want to do is cover chapters 2 through 5, particularly the warnings, the woes in chapter 5. And because I don't have time to cover all that, I want to kind of survey chapters 2, 3, and 4 and get you to that point where you can go and kind of understand what's going on and maybe read it for yourself. So let's do this part very, very quickly. So let's begin at the beginning of chapter 2 because chapter 2 begins with an awesome vision of what the Lord is going to do. He is going to set up Zion, and you're going to hear this Zion a lot. And, and, and for we're going to unpack this over the next several weeks, but understand Zion is ultimately all that Christ has done for us in, in salvation. That's, that's why Zion is what it is. It's because of the Messiah. So he says it'll come to pass in latter days, and the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations will flow to it. And many people shall come together and say, and, and here's why the Zion is not just a mountain, it's a person. Watch this. He says, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. Man, you have a picture of all the nations flowing into this place, seeing the salvation that Jesus Christ has provided. Now, I want to tell you, you look out the window right now at what's going on in the world, that's not the way the current's going. The current is going swiftly away from the Lord, rejecting the, the promises of scriptures, wanting to, to erase any image of Christ that is in our culture. We are quickly, if you compare where our culture is to this promise in the Bible, you see that we are going the other way, but yet he says, all the nations shall flow to it. How do you reverse the flow? In 1811 and 1812, there were a series of earthquakes in Missouri. Strong, violent earthquakes. The strongest one happened on February the 7th of 1812. And it's estimated that it was an 8.8 .8 earthquake, which would have been the, 
the strongest, most violent earthquake on record in U.S. history if we had the same kind of instrumentation and data that we do now. That earthquake was so strong that it rang the bells in Boston, 1,300 miles away. When it happened, islands that were in the middle of the Mississippi River vanished. Whirlpools cropped up all over the Mississippi River. Have you ever heard of Real Foot Lake in Tennessee? That lake was formed from that earthquake. And they said for several hours that day, the Mississippi River reversed flow. Wow, it went the other way. When you look at what's going on in our culture, you think, man, I want to tell you, I, I see this promise of, of what, hey, listen, child of God, do not be fooled. The rebellion of man will not thwart the purposes of God. So how is he going to reverse flow of our culture? Disaster. It will come through a cataclysmic shaking of the way that things are. And then he begins to outline what that looks like and something that he calls the day of the Lord. If you begin to look in verse six following, I would call this part humiliation. He takes the pride of man and he just humiliates him. Verse nine, so man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You see in the rest of this chapter of scripture, people who think currently they are in control looking for caves to hide in. They are literally trying to go into the ground. They're burying buses in the backyard, y'all. They're trying to get away from the terror of, of what the Lord is doing. And the message of it comes in 2.22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And listen, when the judgment begins, what man wants to do doesn't matter. He's no longer in control. The idolatry of self is over. The humiliation has begun. The, second, the, the next thing that happens in this reversal, the disaster that brings the reversal of flow, I would call upheaval, and it's in chapter three. He describes it through the entire chapter. You see political upheaval. You see children in charge, captains lose their rank, counselors, and it's just, it's a complete flip-flop of all we know of the order of government. Family upheaval. Verse five, people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. Man, people begin to, in panic situations, they begin to attack one another. Even the, the closest of relationships are ripped apart. Economic upheaval. If you look at the end of the chapter, man, he says in verse 18, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and he names all these nice things that people spend their money on now, but they become absolutely worthless in this situation. Verse 24, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. 
Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Man, all these people who had it all together, all of a sudden in desperation, man, they have nothing. And their life begins to deteriorate. And it all becomes worthless. That's the picture. Upheaval. Chapter 4. When you read through Scripture, God never brings about a judgment without giving you a place of salvation. So in chapter 4, you see the way of salvation here, right? And you begin in chapter two, or verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem for the midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. You, you see salvation again. We understand and, and we're going to unpack all this, but that's, that's Christ and all that he has provided. So I want you to understand, a doomsday is coming. But before you spend hours going on YouTube, learning how to turn tree bark into a rechargeable battery, you need to turn to Jesus. Your bus in the backyard ain't going to matter. The way of salvation is not in human invention. You see, that's pride again. And we are, we are so compelled to think, man, I'll just go, no, man, salvation is in the Lord. The point of all of this is to not make you self-sufficient. The point of all this is to turn you to Christ as the only way of salvation. So there's your hope. Now we get into chapter 5. Anytime we read of judgment in the Bible, there's this human part of us that goes, man, that just seems so mean. Why is God so mean? Why would God do that? He needs to give people a chance. So here comes the, what's called the parable of the vineyard. And this is a this is a parable that is retold, and this theme of the vineyard and the vine is in the book of Psalms. Jesus kind of does a remix of it as well in the Gospels. You, you see it in John 15 that I'm the vine, you're the brand. You see, oh, you see, you're going to see this a lot through the Bible, this vineyard theme, right? So he says, let me tell you why I'm going to destroy it. It's not because I don't love it. But one reason I'm going to destroy is because they've despised my goodness. And he tells you all the things that God, that God has done to set it up for success. He dug it and cleared it of stones, verse 2. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He nurtures it. He protects it. He feeds it. He hewed out a, a wine vat in it. They despised the goodness of God. They forgot their purpose. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Listen, this is the story of Eden. This is the story of Israel in the promised land. What did Jesus give the Holy Spirit for the church to do? Bear fruit. This will be the story of the church. God has a very specific purpose 
that we are to bear fruit, and at some point it turns wild, so it's ripe for judgment. And the Lord basically says in verses 3 and 4, what do you think ought to do with it? Let me ask you this. When you have something and all of a sudden it no longer has any chance of fulfilling its purpose, it's broken beyond repair, what do you do with it? What's the definition of insanity? Definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. What you do with things that are broken beyond repair, you get rid of them. You break it down. You throw it away. You get a new one. So he says, verse 5, now I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what you do. I'll remove its hedge. It'll be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled down. I will make it a waste. And it shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and the thorns will grow up and I will command the clouds that they shall not rain upon it. It's over. God in his goodness gives everyone what they need to know him and be fruitful in a relationship with him. When it becomes wild, at some point it becomes a waste and the time of grace ends. Ripe for judgment. But you look out the window and you go, well, I mean, it don't look that bad. So he says, let me give you some warning signs. There is a gathering storm, and so he gives you six woes. And I want you, man, I watched this brilliant movie the other day that's based on a book that was written in the 80s that pretty much told us how insane we would be in the information age and just run from one scary thing to another, not really understanding why we're doing what we're doing, but just in a, all the time, always in a panic. And that book was written 40 years ago. And it always blows my mind when you see something like that that just nails it. It's like Fahrenheit 451. That book was written in the 40s, and it is just, it, it predicts the world you and I live in right now. It's amazing. Isaiah, y'all, was written in the 7th century B.C. That means it's over 2,700 years old. Keep that in mind. When I go through these woes, the question is, does it sound familiar? And you're going to be like, yeah. And here's why. Because humans are what humans are. We always do what we do. 2,700 years ago, people were doing the same thing in rebellion against God that they do right now. It just looks different. So here it is. Woe number one. I would call it affluent, but alone. Woe to those, here's verse uh, eight. Woe to those who join house to house, add field to field until there's no more room. And you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. You have to understand Israel, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, God set up a stopgap in their economy once in a generation, every 50 years, so that everyone would have plenty. Every generation would get a reset so that there would not be generational poverty and there would, that, that there wouldn't be ground that became unproductive. But Israel ignored that. 
And so there's a, a, an economic gap that was developing, right, between the rich and the poor. And so he says, here it is, verse 9, The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses will be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. We are the most wealthy nation on the planet. But look at how we have used our wealth to isolate ourselves from one another. And we've been talking about this for the last several years. Man, people have more money than they've ever had, but we feel so alone. Large houses, large tracts of land that are unproductive. Y'all, there should never be a food shortage in this world. There should never be a food shortage in this country. We have plenty of land to produce crop, but it's just large tracts of land so that we can get away from everybody. And then we pile the poor into small tracts of land in the city, and there's not, and it's just breeding chaos. Y'all are up here and you're going, dude, he's getting all political. Guys, I'm just getting Bible, y'all. This is what happens. The Lord's giving you, look, hey, look out the window and tell me if you can't see it. Bible says, love your neighbor. As yourself. We want to get away from our neighbor and be by ourselves. Woe number two. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. They may run after strong drink and tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. One of the things that you're going to see in these woes is in two of them, alcohol factors prevalently in it. And whenever you have a culture that all it's doing is looking for the next drink, it becomes very casual and careless, not very thoughtful, very, wanting to swim in the shallow end of the pool and never get deep. And you can see, man, this is a person who's got life like they like it, man. From the morning till late in the evening, man, they've always got somewhere to go and something to do. And everywhere they show up, it's a party. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, wine in their feast. I mean, man, they're having a great time. But here's the problem. They can't get deep, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. To know the Lord, y'all, you have to pause things. That's why he put in the Bible, pause as Sabbath. You, you have to, man, you're going to get so wrapped up in life. Every once in a while, you need to hit the pause button and stop. A, man, and you need some time with me. They're, they're so busy doing what's running from one entertainment to the next. And how often are we doing that? Just running from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And you ask a person, man, are we going to see you on Sunday? Gosh, man, it's just been such a busy week. Busy doing what? Hey, y'all, I don't know if y'all realize this. We all have the same amount of time. It's all in what you choose to do with it. But man, these people are so busy, never satisfied. I would call it entertained, but empty. So after those two woes, you'll see a pattern, and then there's going to be two therefores. You'll see this after the next set of woes as well. Verse 13, Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. 
They get carried away, they lose it all, and they don't even know why. They never saw it coming. The tornado was coming from that side. They were looking out that window. They didn't heed the warning. They thought they had it all under control themselves. They were satisfied in the way it was going. Here's the scary one, verse 14. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite, opened its mouth beyond measure, the nobility of Jerusalem and all her multitude will go down. Her revelers will also, uh, he who exalts in her. That basically means this. People with waste who wasted their lives, there will be more and more of them die wasting their lives and more and more people who go straight to hell and have no idea that's where they were headed. Sheol just opens her appetite. Man, people are just... The Lord's given them all that they need to turn in, and we are just partying hard right off into the abyss. Verse 18. I would call this overloaded, but won't let go. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin with carts of ropes. In other words, they're hitching themselves to a wagon that there's no way they have the power to pull. No way. And they know they're in trouble. But look at this. Who say? Now, now they use religious language. Talking about, man, they're prayerful. Oh. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. God, do something to get us out of this situation. Instead of paying attention to what God has already done. Look, look. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Now that sounds really good. We want the Lord to say something new so that we can get out of this situation and God is going, why don't you pay attention to what I've already said? And how many times do you see people, man, in church and in, in this and in that, we're always looking for the silver bullet. It's this program, it's that group, it's this thing, it's that book. And we, man, we just keep hitching ourselves to our sin going, I'm just waiting on God to get me out of this. But the problem is we won't let go. It's just an excuse He has said enough and he has done enough. And if you won't obey that, stay hitched to the wagon. It's your own choice. Can you see that storm coming? The church is full of that. 2 Timothy chapter 4 said that they will have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Wow. Boy, this is going to get familiar. Redefine morality. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Instead of rising to God's standard of morality, they'll use the same words but change the definitions. Is that going on in our culture? Can you see the storm? Redefine wisdom. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Listen, this is, this is prevalent in our relativistic culture. Have you noticed how we don't judge the merit of what someone has said? All we do 
is judge who said it. It doesn't have to be truthful or even logical. But there's certain people that just put themselves up there to say, well, if I said it, you ought to do it. They're wise in their own eyes. Can you see the storm coming? Redefine who and what matters. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes. And look at the next line. He uses the word valiant men. What's a hero? A hero is a person who's made a difference for other people. They have, they have risked their lives for the sake of someone else. That's a hero. You're living because they were willing to die. Valiant men, excellent, accomplished, contributors have really made a difference in society. But the heroes are heroes at drinking wine. They have won nothing. They have accomplished nothing. They have conquered nothing. They have contributed nothing. They just drink And they're the influencers. And we just scroll it, scroll it, scroll it, scroll it, scroll it. Valiant men, valiant in something meaningless, mixing drinks. Wow. And here's what happens in a culture like that. These people who are morons, when other morons give them influence, they leverage society their way so that you can't get them out of power. So look, he says, they acquit the guilty for a bribe. They pervert justice. You looking out the window, y'all? And they deprive the innocent of his right. That's why you live in a society where when there's a call, something happens. We all feel really good about getting on our phone and go fund me. Oh, man, let's just, you know, oh, yeah, man, I'm, ooh, I care. Let me ask you this question. Where'd your money go? Y'all remember ALS? How much we all cared about ALS? Man, we cared about ALS. We cared so much, we were willing to, Get on the phone and dump freezing cold water on our head for ALS and get people to donate. And look, I'm not look, I'm not I'm not telling you you didn't care about ALS. I'm not telling you that didn't make a difference for anybody. What I'm asking you is this: Have you checked on it in a while? You see, man, when morons run things, we just run from one thing to another like we're really making a difference, and the innocent are dying. It never gets to them. Can you see the storm coming? Therefore, as tongues of fire devour the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be rottenness and their blossom will go up like dust. God says, I will burn it like fire through dry brush 
and you won't stop it. Can you see the storm coming? The problem is, y'all, we don't ever do well with warnings. He shows us the way of salvation. And here's the problem, verse 24, they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You have been warned. And if you judge what will happen in the future by the way things are now, you will be standing on a second-story building with water all around you saying goodbye because the bridge is gone. There's no way out. You had plenty of warning and you didn't listen. Our salvation is in turning to the Lord, not in burying a bus in your backyard. If you want to be saved, repent of sin. It's our foolishness in getting away from the word of God and getting away from obeying him that gets people into this trouble. Turn to Christ. You have been warned. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me for a moment? So I know we've had a long service today. A lot of things have happened. But I think we would be remiss without giving an opportunity for our hearts to give a testimony in this moment. After we have been warned, after we have seen revival breaking out in our land, I think God is looking at us right now in Psalm 50 going, what you going to do? What you going to do? So the altar will be open. Man, the storm is gathering. Our salvation has been defined for us. It's in Christ. It's in repentance. It's in turning away from the foolishness of this world and turning back, ordering our ways rightly before our God. So Heavenly Father, God, I pray, Lord, that we would heed the warning, that we repent of our sin, that we would, oh, our callous, hard hearts. God, with your mercy, would you please soften our hearts so that we can hear your voice and respond to your call to turn to Christ in a culture that's really going the wrong way. And there is a disaster on the horizon. Lord Jesus, save us. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand together?